How good is the good Samaritan? Our text this morning is Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon us this morning. We pray that you'd open our hearts, open our ears, open our eyes, that we might hear your word, that we might see your word, that we might believe your word, that we might do your word. For we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. World War II had just ended, and my mom's family had been released from a Japanese internment camp in Jerome, Arkansas. They had been relocated to Cleveland, Ohio, but on this hot afternoon, they found themselves broken down on a rural road in Ohio. At a time when many towns on the West Coast were unwelcome and even violent toward the returning Japanese-American neighbors, even putting up no Japs wanted signs in the Central Valley and Seattle, being stranded on a small road in the boondocks in Ohio wasn't something you looked forward to. Suddenly, a car pulled up, and out stepped a tall Germanic chap. Was there going to be trouble? He turned out to be a good Samaritan, helping to fix the car, and then the man invited my grandparents and my mom to his home for a meal, and they became lifelong friends. Love is made real through action. And this morning, we'll see this principle in Luke with the loving Samaritan. The loving Samaritan. Go ahead and open up your Bibles. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. Luke 10, 25. And it says there, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, in context here, we're picking up where we left off last week. The 72 have returned, rejoicing that God has done miracles through their hands. And then Jesus said this in verse 21 of this same chapter. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. The wise and understanding were all around Israel at this time. They were exemplified by the teachers of the law and the lawyers like this particular man that we see here but the true things of God are hidden from those who are wise and understanding in their own eyes. And Jesus chooses to reveal things to whom he will. Now we see here that a namikos stood up to put Jesus to the test. Namikos. You can hear the word noma in there. That's where we get the word law. He's a lawyer. He's probably the Pharisees. He's probably one who goes out and handles uh, various disputes. He'll write up wills. He'll handle boundary disputes, all related to God's law. The first five books of the Old Testament. He was an expert in these things, but notice that the Namikas stood up and put Jesus to the test. Does that wording sound familiar to you? What it says here is a Greek verb, and the Greek ver verb is ekperazo. It's interesting because in the same Gospel of Luke, back in chapter 4, when Jesus faces his temptation in the wilderness, Satan puts Jesus to the test. And at the end of this testing, when Jesus overcomes Satan, he says this in the Greek, Uk 
ekperaseis, there's that same verb there, ekperazo. Uk means no or not. Ukperaseis kurion, kurios, Lord, right? Ton. Do not put the Lord to the test. Do not put the Lord to the test, says Jesus to Satan. And here we've got a namikas putting the Lord Jesus Christ to the test. He's asking a question which is the greatest and most fundamental of rabbinic questions. How does one inherit the kingdom? How does one inherit eternal life? How is one saved? And Jesus throws it back to the lawyer. He throws it back in the form of two questions. What is written in the law, and how do you read it? Going on to verse 27. And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. The lawyer answers with the theologically correct answer. He gives back what the word of God says. We're to love the Lord with all of our substance and being and to love our neighbor as ourselves. But Jesus then says to him, good, live it, live it. Going on to verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The lawyer is savvy. He wants to prove himself. Now, when it says here he seeks to justify himself, desiring to justify himself, that verb is dikaio. Does that sound familiar? Dikaio? It's part of the dikaio word family. It's where we get the word justification from or righteous, righteousness. This man wants to prove himself righteous. He wants to justify himself. He wants to prove that he knows what he's talking about. He wants to justify himself and his understanding as a lawyer of God's word. The answer that Jesus gives is too quick. It's too theologically imprecise. It doesn't give this lawyer a chance to show off in front of the crowd all of his great learning from the Talmud, from the commentaries of the rabbis. He's not able to access this. Jesus cuts him short at the pass. Do we do this sometimes? Do we walk away from simple answers? Do we look down on Pentecostals and primitive Baptists to say, just believe on Jesus, and we want to say, but you need justification by faith, and you need the five points of Calvinism, and we want to roll out the church fathers and quote them. We want to quote, quote the reformers. The lawyer doesn't want such simple answers. This is all Jesus has to say on the matter. He feels caught out and senses that Jesus is challenging him on whether he's actually done the things that he preaches, that he actually lives the things that he teaches, that the words coming out of the lawyer's mouth actually translate into action in hands and feet. The big question here at the end is, and who is my neighbor? Well, in the first century, particularly with Pharisaic teaching, it's your fellow Jews. Even there, there's some question. Sinners and tax collectors who are working with the Roman authorities. Are these my neighbors? A neighbor certainly isn't going to be one of these Samaritans, a Samaritan who's a half-breed mixed together with Gentiles and Jews left in the land at the time when the 12, 10 tribes of the northern kingdom were carried off. Certainly a neighbor is not a Gentile, the goyim, the, the filthy nations out there. Friends, who's your neighbor? 
Certainly not the big leftist at work. What about your God-hating neighbor? What about that idiot redneck Trump supporter? Is that your neighbor? Going on to verse 30. Jesus replied, and this is interesting here because Jesus doesn't just give a simple answer. He throws a parable back upon the lawyer. And friends, I want to remind you what parables are. They're not just simply little stories for flanagrams with Sunday school classes, but we're told in the Word of God itself what a parable is. Parables are dark sayings. They're stories that have deep understanding. They frustrate those who are wise and understanding in their own eyes, but they're revealed to the little children of faith. Those who have eyes of faith understand parables. Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Here's a man going along, minding his own business. He's waylaid by robbers. They strip him of his clothes. They beat him so bad that he looks like he's dead, laying on the side of the road. The road between Jerusalem and Jericho was a dangerous one. It went out through the boondocks in the wilderness. It went up toward Jerusalem, and it ends at Jericho, a very low place. In fact, one of the lowest places on earth. Very deserty, very dangerous, very lonely. In Jerome's time, it was called the Red or Bloody Way. Verse 31, now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and we saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, I believe what likely is going on here in Jesus' story, I think somebody in the first century would understand these things. He's talking in very small terms as far as distances. It would be something like a man was going from Buda to Georgetown. And you would understand the geography of things. Jericho was a priestly city at this time. Priests lived in Jericho. It was set apart like a Levitical city. Levites and priests lived in Jericho at this time. So, what's going on? I think this priest is returning from his priestly duties in Jerusalem. He sees a man laying by the side of the road. He's had hard work down in Jerusalem. He just wants to get home, and so he passes by. A Levite comes by as well. I believe the Levite is engaging in similar work in Jerusalem as the priest was. He would have been assisting the priestly class in their duties at the temple. He's heading down that road, heading home toward Jericho, and he passes by as well. Now, the interesting thing about both this priest and this Levi here, Levite, is that they had more official authority and ceremonial heft than a Pharisee lawyer like this Namikas, and yet they passed by. They didn't want to get involved. Maybe they were worried that they were looking at a dead man's corpse. Now, if you lived in the first century and you're a Jew, and you touch a dead body, you become ceremonially unclean. You become a zombie for a week. You're the walking dead. You have to go through a cleansing process for seven days. On the seventh day, you can present yourself to a priest and be declared clean. But here, looking at the side of the road, heading back home from Jerusalem, it looks like a dead body's there. Do I want to touch that dead body and get unclean for seven days? Don't want to get involved in a mess. Perhaps the priest and the Levite thought the robbers were lurking nearby. Don't want to get involved in a mess. Kids, do you want to get involved in a mess? Particularly you boys. 
You boys need to be thinking about that. Do you want to get involved in a mess? What do we do today with a mess? We see someone getting a beat down, we take out our phones. We see someone lying on the side of the road, we take out our phones. Hey, check this out. Guy laying on the side of the 71. We put it up on social media. Don't want to get involved in a mess. Who wants to get involved in a mess? Jesus does. Jesus does. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. Now, Samaritans are hated in the first century by Jews, and the Samaritans hated the Jews. The Samaritans are a hybrid people. Now, when the, the people of God in the ten northern tribal area in Samaria, the kingdom of Samaria, the northern kingdom of, of Israel, there were ten tribes up there. 722 B.C., they're carried off into captivity by the Assyrians, and the Assyrians were brutal and smart at the same time. They would pick up entire people groups, and they'd move them on the other side of their empire. Then they would pick up another people and put them into that land. That way they could keep you disoriented and under control. Well, when they did that, they left behind some of the weakest and most uninfluential Jews. And then these Gentiles came in, and they mixed together, and they created a hybrid of Judaism. They had their own temple. They hated the Jews and thought they were wrong, and the Jews hated the Samaritans. In fact, Samaritans sometimes did things like scattering around dead bones inside the temple grounds. And so there's all this friction. And Samaritans are no better than Gentile dogs, the Samaritan in our story wasn't likely coming from Jerusalem, but was coming from someplace else on business. He's far from home, from his homeland, far north of Judea at this time. But he, unlike the priest, and unlike the Levite, was far from a home to take this man to, and yet he had compassion. He had compassion. Do you see any compassion here with the Levite and the priest? Verse 33, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. He gave his own wine and oil. Now, if you're in the first century and you're traveling, you don't drink water out of wells that you don't know. You get sick and you die off of water you're not used to. You carry wine with you, and you carry oil. You carry wine for your drinking. You carry the oil for dipping your bread. Common meal on the road. At this time, we don't have Sonic. Maybe they got a, a cave that has a 7-Eleven in it and only has bread. So you buy a loaf of bread. You break some off. It's normally crusty and day-old, and you dip it in the oil, and that's your meal for the day. This is his sustenance his food for his trip. And he uses his own wine and oil for this stranger stripped by the side of the road. He put him on his own donkey, which means he would have walked the rest of the arduous journey on foot. He gave the innkeeper two denarii, that's two days' wages, enough to feed 25 men, and then he took responsibility for everything else. And then Jesus asked this question to the Namikas. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now, interestingly, Jesus had just been among the Samaritans, and they had repulsed him. 
They wanted him to go away. They didn't want to receive him. And yet in his story, the most loving person toward neighbor is a Samaritan. What's this really all about? Kids, what's this parable really about? Is this parable simply telling us to be good people to others? Or is it telling us something deeper? I think it's telling us something deeper. For you see, in reality, Jesus is the loving Samaritan. And the man waylaid on the side of the road is helpless humanity. Jesus is the loving Samaritan, and we're the ones waylaid on the side of the road by the world, the flesh, and the devil, helpless and dead as it were. The priest and the Levite are law, which cannot save the man, but Jesus can and does, and Jesus saves people like us. Can I hear an amen to that? But there is an application of this, and that's this. Who is your neighbor, and how far are you willing to go to save them? One of the easiest and perhaps the most profound things to do is just invite them to church. Have them come join the feast. Climbing Mount Fuji in the summer can be a strenuous hike. Climbing Mount Fuji in the winter can be deadly, as JPL employee Leonard Ephraim found out. Not bringing along a pickaxe, hiking alone in the winter, and descending too quickly were some of the mistakes that Mr. Ephraim made. Rounding an icy turn too rapidly, Mr. Ephraim's steel spike crampons broke off, and without a pickaxe, he hurtled down the mountain's icy slope on his belly. The only thing that stopped his fall was an object that broke his pelvis and his hands. Alone and injured, Leonard cried out for help, and as Providence would have it, two good Samaritans came to his rescue. They wrapped him in a tent and laid on both sides of him to keep him warm through the cold night until rescuers arrived. They saved his life. The Samaritan in our parable this morning also gave of himself to save a man's life. But at the end of the day, the Samaritan is pointing toward a Savior who rescues from more than physical harm. For Jesus is the ultimate loving Samaritan. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the great loving Samaritan, your son. We thank you that he rescues from death and rescues from damnation and gives rescue to eternal life. Help us to follow after him. Help us to be good Samaritans. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.